scripture this morning is from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. I am Jeff Schultz, one of the pastors here at Faith Church, and glad to have you all with us in worship this morning. Uh, It's amazing how our world becomes smaller and more accessible through technology, isn't it? Uh, I was so thankful uh, as a Northwestern fan last night to get all the updates from the thoughtful Ohio State fans in the congregation uh, during the Big Ten championship game. Especially in the fourth quarter as Ohio State really uh, banged the drum and beat Northwestern into the ground. We were able to connect that way and it was, it was a special moment. But even with all our technology that makes everything so much more accessible and available and fast-paced, we still find ourselves waiting a lot of the times, don't we? We're waiting for that package to order that we arrived yesterday. Uh, We're waiting for the self-checkout station at the supermarket, which was supposed to eliminate waiting in the first place. Uh, We're waiting a few extra seconds for that text message to go through because the cell signal is not really great where we happen to be at the moment. We're waiting for the right job to come along, waiting for the right person to come along, waiting for real life to begin, maybe. Even in our fast-paced world, With all our technology and all our modern conveniences, we are waiting for something. And this Advent season that begins today helps us discover a purpose for that waiting. The ancient Hebrew patriarchs and kings and priests and prophets waited centuries for the coming of the promised Messiah, the anointed one. They waited hundreds of years, not for the pizza delivery guy to show up so they could have a a hot dinner. They were waiting for something really significant, a king, 
A king who would rule in righteousness and end oppression and injustice and evil once and for all. Have you ever wondered why God planned such a long history with his people Israel in the Old Testament? It certainly wasn't because God couldn't have made it work out a different way. It's not as though God was sort of waiting for the right time to come along to send his son and hoping that things would work out. No, the the clear testimony of the Bible is that God is in control of history and that he rules over all things and nothing can stop or thwart or delay his plans. And yet there's 2,000 years between this promise given to Abraham about a seed and a fulfillment of it in the birth of Jesus. Why that long stretch? One answer, at least, is that I think we need help. God's people need categories to help us make sense of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We need models to understand Christ. And so the history of Israel gives us the context and the categories for understanding who God's Son is and what He has come to do. Because if we skip past the Old Testament and try and interpret Jesus outside of the historical context of God's revelation and God's purposes and and biblical categories, we may end up thinking of Him as, as a coach or a mentor or a good moral example or a guru or... Uh, a model or a victim of injustice, and and there may even be some validity to any of those categories, but they don't give us the complete picture that the Bible does in its own categories of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And in our text today, we have one of those Old Testament categories for understanding Jesus, the category of high priest. Pastor Nathan did a great job last week introducing this this next significant section in Hebrews dealing with Jesus as the great high priest for his people. Now, there are no high priests around today, and so the reason for this background is rather than trying to fit Jesus into a category that we understand from our experience, we need to listen to God's word and, and pay attention to the models and the categories that he gives us for understanding his son and his work in the world. Now, we're continuing in our series called Greater, where we are looking at the supremacy of Jesus in all things. And we're in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. That's on page 1190 in those black church Bibles. If you have one in the seat underneath in front of you or in your Hebrews devotionals, we're on page 20 and we're going to start in verses 1 to 3, with a, just a very brief glimpse, summary of this role and work of these high priests in the Old Testament. The writer of the Hebrews starts out saying, first of all, every high priest is selected from among men. High priests don't drop down from heaven. They're not sent out by some central planning office somewhere. They come out of the community of God's people because if that priest is going to represent men and women... He has to come out of that community of men and women. And so in the Old Testament, Aaron and all his successors were just ordinary Israelites like all the rest. They experienced the same things. They lived with the same pressures, the same trials, the same realities as anyone else. 
Secondly, that, that priest was appointed to act on behalf of people in relation to God. The high priest acts on behalf of people in relation to God. And in the Old Covenant, the, the high point of that was the high priest only entered this special place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelled only once a year and only after making the right sacrifices for his sin and the sin of the people. The priest was not set apart to wear fancy clothes and look impressive. Look at my big poofy hat and my ephod. Aren't I, aren't I stylish? No, he wasn't there to draw attention to himself. He was given the responsibility to represent people before God. And specifically then, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, verse 2 goes on to point out that these priests themselves were weak. They were sinners. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could sacrifice for the people. And they did that so that they could then become the advocate, the representative of the people before God. And then the other thing the writer goes on to say is that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. Oh, isn't that good news? That, that we could have a, a priest, a mediator, whose hands would match his heart. That the work he's doing outwardly is reflected in a genuine care and empathy and compassion for the people of God because he's aware of his own weakness and sins. The, the word here for dealing gently was a philosophical term that meant to hold intention between extremes. So between the extreme of apathy on the one hand, saying, well, you know, we're all sinners and it's no big deal. Don't, don't fret about it. And on the other hand, becoming harsh and critical and, and beating people up and condemning people unduly. He deals gently with weak people like us because he is one too. And then finally, he must be called by God. No one takes this on himself. No one can simply, you know, like a, a new lawyer or doctor in town, hang up a shingle and say, high priest for hire. New high priest in town, starting December 10th, I'll be offering sacrifices of atonement. No, it was someone who was specifically called and chosen by God. God said to Aaron and his descendants, you are the ones that I have chosen to represent the people. And all of this is connected with this system of animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices. And it's important for us to understand this for several reasons. There is a God. And there is sin. And that sin has created a barrier between God and people. But God has made a provision for us to be reconciled to him. He has ordained that, that priests would be the go-betweens, the mediators. And those priests would offer sacrifices through the shedding of blood, a kind of animal substitute for sinful people. The, the sinful sacrificers would see the, the lamb being slain and know that it is being done in his place, her place. And they were supposed to look and say, that should be me up there, but for the mercy of God. And God would look upon the sacrifice and count it 
as covering the sin of the people and turn his righteous anger at sin away. And so the point of of all of this in verses 1 to 3 is this, that we need a mediator. We need a priest. We need someone to stand between us and God. We're not qualified on our own. And the reason to spend time going through this is because that is not the spirit of our age. And that is not the natural inclination of our hearts. We assume that we have the right to go anywhere that we think we have the right to go. That we can speak to anyone on our own authority. I have an opinion and it's as good as anyone else's. I mean, just go on Facebook or check the internet. Everyone has an opinion. And everyone should think my opinion matters. I have a right to be heard. I got to be part of an evangelical group uh, that met with our U.S. senators from Indiana talking about uh, immigration issues and the church's concern for both justice and mercy. Now, that was, that was actually kind of a cool experience to go downtown and, and see the big seal of the United States government there and you get buzzed in and show your ID and you're, you're ushered into a conference room. But I was a little disappointed when I realized I wasn't actually going to be talking to the senator. I met with one of their constituent liaisons. But the more I thought about it, I realized, why did I think I was going to get to talk to the senator anyway? I mean, there are two of them for like six million of us in Indiana, right? And I'm not a big employer. I'm not a state official. I'm not, you know, known in political circles or anything. The only reason I was there is because the leader of this coalition, which is more important than I am, set up the meeting. She's the one who got me in. I shouldn't have really expected that I was going to get to have a meeting with a senator on my own authority or credentials. And if we can understand that in terms of our access to other humans who are also weak and frail and flawed like us and who are there in principle to serve us, how much more true would it be when we think about approaching God? Especially when the Bible, when our own consciences remind us that we repeatedly wrong and offend this God. That we are not consumers, we are not constituents of God, much less supporters. We are by nature rebels and traitors. In all kinds of ways, we all want to be lords over our own tiny kingdoms, even though we are living in God's world. How could I approach that God? I need a mediator. I need a go-between. And that is why it's important to understand the, the role of the priests and the sacrificial system. That's what they're demonstrating. But they're also demonstrating that built into that system are some real inadequacies and problems. Hebrews 5 has pointed out that this priest himself is beset with weakness, that that he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins. So he's imperfect. And furthermore, just like all the rest of us, one day he's going to die, and so he's not going to be there to mediate for us at some point. The priests are going to pass off the scene. He can't guarantee an ongoing presence before God to intercede for the people. 
And in one sense, that is the point of the whole history of the Israelites. It's imperfect, it's inadequate, it's incomplete. It's pointing to something greater. It's pointing us to Jesus. And that's the good news that we read in verse 9. That Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus is the one who can rescue us from guilt and condemnation that separate us from God. Jesus is the one who rescues us from guilt, from the power of sin, from divine wrath, from the fear of death. He alone is able to pull us out of our own self-absorbed little worlds into his kingdom of light and joy and glory and purpose and hope where justice and mercy and truth meet. And everything else in this passage is about explaining how Jesus does that. That the Lord Jesus is the great high priest and the offering. He's the baby born to be the sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And so in the second half of the passage, in the time that we have left, I want us to look at how Jesus is the mediator that we need. Because of his dignity as the Son of God, his eternity in the likeness of Melchizedek and his purity in obedience through suffering. Christ is our mediator. Christ is the source of eternal salvation because of his dignity, his eternity, his purity. And we want to look at these just one at a time. And our goal is that this would deepen our confidence in our salvation and our love for Jesus in securing it for us. So first of all, Jesus is the mediator that we need because of his dignity Dignity means, it means worthy of honor. A dog has more dignity than an ant, for example. Nobody is going to get upset in your neighborhood if you poison the ants in your yard. They're likely to get upset if you poison all the dogs in the neighborhood. Because a dog has more dignity than an ant. It is worthy of more honor. And children have more dignity than dogs. The Humane Society, uh, animal control, they, they rescue stray dogs, they try to find good homes for them. And, and sadly, that doesn't always work, and some of them have to be put to sleep. Now, we can debate whether that's ultimately the right thing to do with stray unwanted dogs, but people would definitely be up in arms if we did that with children. It's different when it's a dog, because a child deserves more dignity, is worthy of more honor than a dog. Nobody would put to sleep children, not even frustrated parents after a 12-hour car trip. And, and those of us that have been there have been tempted at times, or at least somebody invent a sleep gas, right, that will, will get us through this. Because humans are worthy of more dignity than dogs. And God is more worthy of honor still. He is Lord over us. He is superior to us in every way. And Christ has infinite dignity. Worthy of infinite honor as the Son of God. 
Look at what the writer says in verse 4. No one takes this honor of being high priest for himself, but only when called by God. That is, high priest is, is an office, a title of immense honor that you don't just decide you want it. God calls you to it. God bestows it. And verse 5 says, Christ did not even exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Christ did not glorify himself with the dignity that the high priest deserves. God the Father did. But did you notice there was a slight shift in those verses from high priest to son of God? In other words, it says, Christ did not glorify himself as high priest, and you would expect the rest of the sentence to say, but God glorified him as high priest. That's not what it says. It says, but God glorified him by acknowledging him as his son. Christ is a better mediator. Christ is the source of eternal salvation because he is the son of God, the begotten of God from all eternity. And God declared him to be his son, raising him in power from the dead. No other being in the universe could possibly have that dignity. No angel of heaven, no human being, no person of Aaron's line. Only one person could do it, the eternal son of God. And the enemies of God, the enemies of your soul will rage at you. With this message, your salvation is insufficient. You're still guilty. You're condemned. You've blown it. You're shameful. You're a failure. And you need the truth about the foundation of your security to fight against those lies. One, that you are not qualified to stand before God on your own. You need a mediator. You need a mediator who has the dignity to stand before God in your place. And two, your mediator has the infinite glory of the Son of God. Praise the Lord for that. And listen, what that means is you need no human priest. There is no sacrifice for sin that God has commanded anywhere to ever be offered to him again. So therefore, you need no priest. You need no sacrament. You need no rituals to go through. You come to Jesus because he is the priest. He is the one who has the authority and the glory to stand before God in your presence. Praise the Lord. Jesus is our priest and our sacrifice. But that also means that if you are in Christ, despite what I just said, you are now also a priest. Because there is no more formal liturgical priesthood. Now all believers are priests because we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ and we have been commissioned by him to declare the message of the gospel, to intercede on behalf of a broken world that desperately needs to know the rescue that is available only through the one priest. 
And now God sends us out with that message to pray and intercede and in a sense to mediate all of us to point people to the sacrifice that has been done once and for all. Christ alone is the mediator that we need because he alone has the dignity, the worth to stand before God. And Christ alone is mediator because of his eternity. Christ is the mediator we need because he is an eternal priest. Look at verse 6 as God also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, chapter 7 takes up this theme of Melchizedek in detail, and we've had little hints about him a few times already now. So we're going to focus more when we get to chapter 7. Let me give you a very brief summary. Genesis 14, Abraham, the patriarch Abraham, comes back after uh, a military conquest, and Melchizedek, this man, blesses him, and Abraham gives him a tithe, a tenth of the plunder. And the text simply says he was a priest of God Most High. That's it. And then nothing more about Melchizedek for another thousand years until David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in Psalm 110, the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is what is quoted here. The writer is saying Melchizedek symbolizes in the Old Testament a priesthood that is different from Aaron. It is different because Melchizedek becomes a, a sign of a kind of priesthood that would last forever. What Melchizedek symbolized, Jesus realized. That is, Christ really is the better mediator, having neither beginning nor end of days. That means that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross is infinitely valuable, and he goes on applying the benefit of that sacrifice eternally to his people without end. This is also for our confidence in the face of fears and doubts and temptation and accusation. You do not need or want to try to stand before God pleading the merits of your efforts or your faithfulness or your service or your good deeds. Christ is the source of eternal salvation because he lives forever to apply his righteousness to his children. Here's one way you could put it. Uh, you know, you could say maybe to one of your friends, hey, last month you probably heard somebody won that one and a half billion dollar lottery jackpot, right? I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? But wouldn't it be amazing, even more amazing, if two things were true? If you had a treasure of infinite value, not just a billion dollars, but a, a treasure greater than that and of things of eternal significance, not just money, but things that really matter, lacking nothing of value. What if you had a treasure like that and you had the guarantee that you would enjoy it forever without it ever diminishing? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? That would be something to celebrate. In other words, infinite value with infinite duration 
is what would bring us complete satisfaction, the ultimate never-ending enjoyment. Listen, can I tell you, that is exactly why you are a follower of Jesus. Because you have come to see that Jesus is the treasure and that he offers in himself life and hope and forgiveness and joy and peace unendingly with no diminishment in a life that will go on forever, only getting better and better. That is why Jesus is the mediator that we need. You have come to Jesus because he is what your hearts were made for. And he will never exhaust the riches of his grace, his kindness, his love, his joy, his glory, his care, his blessing, his advocacy for you are endless. Jesus is the mediator we need because of his eternity and because of his purity. Christ is the better mediator, not just because of the holiness that he has in himself as the sinless son of God, but because of the purity that was tested and proved through obedience in suffering. Look at what verse 8 says. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That does not mean that Jesus went from being obedient to being disobedient or vice versa. The writer has just told us in the end of the last chapter that he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. So Jesus was never sinful or disobedient. The writer tells us instead that he went from obeying without suffering to obeying through unspeakable suffering. In other words, his he, he learned from experience what suffering is and proved that his purity, his righteousness would endure. And that did not happen automatically. Verse 7 says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This was not a pretense. This was not a sham. This was real Hard-won obedience for Jesus. And it wasn't just for a moment or even for a season. Some people take verse 7 to be talking about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed so intensely that he sweat drops of blood from his pores. No, notice the phrase, during the days of his flesh, all his life, Jesus was fighting a constant struggle to obey the Father. He begged and he cried out and he pleaded his entire life. And what is it that he was praying and crying to the one who was able to save him from death? I don't think that means that's primarily what he was praying about. Because Jesus himself makes it clear, I have come to offer my life as a ransom. Father, it is for this hour that I have come into the world. He was born to be a sacrifice. And he was heard. That means God answered the prayer. 
God gave him what he asked for. So I think verse 8 is saying what that was. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was praying for obedience. He was praying for persevering purity in obedience to all the Father commanded. Because Jesus knew that there was a death worse than death. Physical death is bad enough. But there is something worse than physical death. Much worse. Unbelief and disobedience in rejecting the Father is far worse than physical death. So Jesus prayed all his life against that and he was heard and the Father answered that prayer. Instead of caving into temptation, he was made perfect by his obedience through suffering. That makes him the mediator that we need and the source of eternal salvation for all who follow him. It's been said the man who acts as his own lawyer has a fool for a client. Think about it. Yes, that's it. The man who acts as his own lawyer has a fool for a client. You and I make terrible mediators. And God is speaking to us today to warn us against the temptation to trust in our own dignity, our own purity, our own efforts, our work, our, our record. Jesus is the mediator that we need because of his purity, his eternity, his dignity. He is the one man chosen by God to represent us before the Father. He offered himself up because he came to save his people from their sins. And so he comes to deal gently with us who are wayward and ignorant. That's us. Do you know his salvation in that way? Because not everyone does. Verse 9 puts it this way. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, now listen carefully. Those who obey Christ have the eternal salvation that he obtained for us. Are you obeying Christ? Are you obeying his will? Or are you living in disobedience to his will? One thing is clear from Hebrews. The will of Christ to be obeyed first and foremost is to trust in him. To cease from trusting in yourself, relying on yourself, believing in yourself, hoping in yourself. But to trust Jesus, as the writer has said, to pay careful attention to him, to hold fast to him, to maintain our confession of him, to guard against a heart of unbelief against him, to draw near to him, to find grace and mercy. That's what it means to obey Jesus, first of all. The main act of obedience is to believe in Christ and the promises that are tied to him. And every other act of obedience flows from that. 
Daily acts of practical obedience are the evidence that we have made this first step of saving faith in Christ in obedience to his call and his invitation. If you are not walking in obedience to Jesus, I call you, I urge you, come to Jesus, repent, be reconciled to him. Put your hope in the promises of God in Christ. Trust no longer in your righteousness, your record, your efforts, your purity, your endurance, your faithfulness, your honor, your goodness. Let it go and grab hold of Christ. Because Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all who trust in him. Jesus is the better mediator. Believe in him. Trust him. Follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message from your word and how it connects to this season of Advent, a season of waiting. We look back and prepare our hearts to recognize and celebrate your entry into the world as your Son took on human flesh. We look forward to his return as a righteous king who will rule in glory and rescue and save his people ultimately. And Father, we look up to Jesus who is the better mediator and the source of our salvation. Oh, Father, help us to believe that. Help us to live it. Thank you. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.